This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Thanks for joining my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, each week as I dive into a new case with you guys. We created this show to shine light on victims' story and be a voice for those that no longer have one. And by doing so, we can expose the monsters lurking all around us. Welcome back, everyone. Today's case, we are talking about an infamous one, one that you have likely heard of. If you have not heard of this case, you're in for a wild ride and a truly tragic ending. If you have heard of this case, I hope you learn something new about the victim, as she is often not the focus of this story. With that, are you ready for today's case? So like I said, you probably know this one. Most people listening probably know this case. It is an infamous case. There's like a lot of shows that have come out on it. And recently there was a new show that came out on it. And though some of the shows are good, they're like the shows that have come out are less documentary and more like dramatizations of it. And they are well done, but I think they always kind of focus on the killer in this case. So that was one of the reasons that I wanted to cover it and try to like focus on more about the victim and not like the killer's story. Okay. So you'll likely catch on to what it's about quickly. So on January 9th, 1950, Charles Robert Pomeroy, known as Bob, and his wife Bertha Lauren Hancock Pomeroy gave birth to their first child and only daughter who they named Betty Pomeroy. Betty was cherished in her family. She had two younger brothers, Ronnie and Richard, who adored their older sister. The Pomeroys were a tight-knit bunch who worked together on the farm that they owned in Norwick, Kansas, and this is where Betty was raised. So Bob and Bertha had met just a couple years before Betty was born in 1948 when Bob was visiting the mineral baths in Claremore, Oklahoma. And Bob, from- Bertha, Betty. Bob, Bertha, and Betty. Yeah. <laughs> I like how you said that with like a country accent because they're from <laughs> Kansas. <laughs> so like I said, they met in Claremore, Oklahoma, and they end up getting married on January 22nd, oh. 1949. So Bob had grown up Baptist, but decided later in life to convert to the Methodist church because that's the religion that his kids started leaning more into. In fact, Betty even quit both playing the clarinet in the school band and playing on the basketball team because she felt like her role in the Methodist youth fellowship aligned more with her passions. So Bob and Bertha's kids, I guess, were just really into this Methodist church. So they started going there instead. And in 1963, Bob and Bertha Pomeroy bought the Standard Station, which they renovated and turned into Pomeroy Service. Then in 1988, they opened their very own restaurant called Bert and Bob's Cafe. And it was a fun little venture for about five years before they closed it. 
So Betty, she was an easy child for the Pomeroys. She grew up well-liked and successful in her academics. In 1965, she graduated as valedictorian of Norwick High School. Robert and Bertha knew that Betty would continue her education through attending college because she had a passion for excelling in school. So she decided to attend Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. And due to her passion for academics, she decided that she wanted to continue her continue her life within the education system so she majored in elementary education betty had always grown up with a lot of friends and she was a member of multiple clubs and organizations through high school and college she did like student council she was in the band she played basketball again she was in that church youth group and she was also very popular among the boys. She was described as having a wide Hollywood smile and an attractive innocence about her. And Betty kept this diary where she detailed different dates that she would go on through her life and whether that date was a good time or a bust. So everyone that knew Betty was a little taken back when she ends up setting her sights on a non-conventionally attractive man who was also a little older than her. She met Alan Gore during a college math class, and he was her teacher in the fall of 1968. And he gave her private tutoring sessions, which blossomed once she was not his student into a more romantic connection. And he wasn't like a super old teacher. He was actually a senior at the college and in like a grad program. And so he was just able to teach this class for like the freshmen. So not too weird. Yeah, like when you say it was her college professor, that sounds like very scandalous. Yeah, like he could be old. Yeah, but I think he's just like four to five years older than her. And they do mention that they waited until she was no longer his student and then their romance bloomed from there. So it's not like crazy, but people were a little shocked by it because again, Betty had always been very popular with the boys and Alan to others was just like not super attractive (laughs) to them. So they were like, hmm, they just kind of wondered like, what was Betty attracted to? His intelligence. Yes, literally. That is what I think. (laughs) Uh, So it was obvious that Alan was excited by Betty, who was beautiful and captivating. But again, her friends just didn't understand this attraction, not only physically, but he was also very quiet and shy. He seemed to keep to himself. Still, though, the two continued dating through 1968. And by the following year, 1969, they were engaged to be married. So they married back in Betty's hometown in January of 1970. And when Betty had first taken Alan back home to meet her parents, Bob and Bertha, Bob was less than amused by Alan. Apparently, Alan had grown up in the small farming town of Larned, Kansas. But to Bob, he just didn't seem like a farm-raised boy. His shy nature around Betty's parents gave them the wrong impression, so they sort of saw him as stuck up. But when their daughter decided to marry him, they, of course, had to come around to the idea and they did support her. So soon after getting married, Alan and Betty moved to New Mexico before Alan received a job offer from Rockwell International. And this was going to be an incredible career opportunity for him as he would be their electronics conglomerate and major defense contractor. The only problem was that the job was near Dallas, Texas. 
So the couple decides that the job is worth the move. So in April of 1977, they move into a home at 410 Dockwood Street in Wiley, Texas. This is a suburb just northeast of Dallas. And when they came to this area, Betty took a job as a fifth grade teacher at R.C. Dodd Middle School. I feel like I don't know the story yet. You feel like you don't? Well, that's probably because I'm starting with her life and nobody talks about that. (laughs) So I feel like you'll know soon. Maybe, but maybe not. I keep thinking Betty, Betty. But I'm pretty sure you do. I feel like we've talked about one of the shows. I feel like I need a Googler. <laughs> Don't do it yet. <laughs> Just wait and see if you know it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this town of Wiley, Texas, it's like very quaint, very small, especially back then in 1977. It's like a tiny town. Everybody knows everybody. And by this time, Betty had already had her first daughter, Alyssa, who was born in July of 1974. And the family also had two dogs, both Cocker Spaniels. One was named Princess and one was named Cheeto, which was kind of cute. Ever since Betty had given birth to Alyssa. Oh, I want to make sure I'm saying this right. Alyssa. Wait, I don't think it's Alyssa. I think it's Alisa. So I've heard her name is both Alisa and Alicia, oh. but I don't think it's Alicia. I'm pretty sure it's Alisa because she later on in life goes by Lisa. Oh, okay. So ever since Betty had given birth to Alisa, she struggled to fill herself again. She loved being a mother and was an incredible one. In fact, through her married years, Betty and Alan had fostered multiple kids who were in need of safe homes while in the system. So truly, I admire Betty for doing this. I think having good people with the right intentions in the foster care system is very needed. But regardless of being a doting mom, there was a piece of happiness that seemed to be missing and Betty just could not find it. It turns out she was struggling with postpartum depression. And while the doctors had given her this explanation, it was still the 1970s. So not much was known or understood about postpartum depression. And Betty was usually just sent away with maybe a prescription for Valium, which is typically an anti-anxiety medication. But oftentimes she was sent away with no help at all. And the fact that the class she taught in Wiley, Texas was unruly and tough, this made her moods that much more desperate for better times. And then Alan, he also traveled a lot for work, and the hours he put in weekly excelled far past 40 hours a week. Betty absolutely despised Alan's traveling for work, and she had a lot of anxiety surrounding it. So she would beg him not to go as often, and she really pushed him to be home more. And for Alan, this felt suffocating. But Betty felt alone. She was struggling, and she really had no support system because her husband is focused on work. And we'll see soon, also focused on another woman. And then her family is all back in Kansas where she grew up. So she doesn't live near any relatives or longtime friends. And this was a very dark time for Betty. And she was just trying to make the best of it. So regardless of the hardships, Betty knew that she loved being a mother more than anything else. So by 1978, she was planning for their second child. She specifically wanted to plan this one out so that she could give birth in the early months of summer. This way, she would already be on break from teaching and she wouldn't have to take any time off work after giving birth to this baby. 
Now, for Alan, this seemed to turn their marital sex life into a robotic type of relationship, where they were only having sex during Betty's fertility window, and it felt transactional instead of romantic. Which, for me, it's like, okay, well, that still doesn't excuse an affair. In my opinion, it's like, Alan, you can kind of get over it. Maybe talk to your wife. I'm sorry, but at least you're having sex. I'm sorry she's trying to create a second child for you. I get that it could maybe feel like robotic when you're like only doing it for that reason. But it's like, just give it a minute. (laughs) I don't know. You go through ups and downs in marriage. Yes. So it's like, just ride the wave. Anyway, instead of doing that, instead of riding the wave, he ends up falling into the arms of another woman. It was at the First United Methodist Church of Lucas that Alan and Betty Gore meet Pat and Candace Montgomery. Pat and Candace. Yeah, now you know. (laughs) That's where most people be like, oh, I know this. So Pat and Candace Montgomery had married in the early 1970s. Pat worked as an engineer for Texas Instruments. And in 1977, he was able to move Candace, who was also known as Candy, into her dream home with their two children. He was making around $70,000 a year, according to... And according to an inflation calculator, $70,000 in 1977 is equivalent in purchasing power to about $351,000 today in 2023. I was going to say, it sounds like uh, that was a lot for that time. Yeah. Because even $70,000 now is... It's like a comfortable income. Fairly good. Yeah. Like yeah. 70000 now is a comfortable income. So in 1977, when it's equal to 351000 he's like, he's raking it in for a more than comfortable life. So that's kind of what Candy had married him for. She never seemed to be too impressed by her husband, but she had dreamed of being a stay-at-home mom and Pat could give her that. But this dream life just was not enough for Candy. She was bored, regardless of being hyper-involved in her community, volunteering for all the church events, and being a very well-known member with a lot of friends. She still felt like something was missing in her life, and there was no excitement. So Candy had grown up with an army dad. He was a radar technician, and she moved around from base to base often while growing up. She was always a little rambunctious and looking for adventure in her life. Candy was a very small, petite woman with blonde hair, and she was charismatic. She was usually able to get what she wanted. That's why she went looking outside of her marriage for some excitement when she felt that she was living what she thought of as a mundane suburban life, suburban, as a mundane suburban life as a mom and wife. So she thought her marriage was dull, and she told friends that she wanted to fill a spark again. So the Gores and Montgomerys, they had met at church. Alan and Candy were both involved in the church choir and the church volleyball team. Now, regardless of Alan being described as a non-conventionally attractive man, Candy did begin to take notice of him, especially after he accidentally knocks her over during a volleyball game. He helps her up from the ground, and she felt that spark that she had been searching for. She told a friend that attended the same church, a friend named Shelly, that Alan Gore smelled sexy or smelled like sex. And (laughs) her friend was like, Alan? Like Alan Gore? She just, again, did not see it. But Candy's like, yes, 
he smelled sexy. I like the smell of him. Very odd. But I kind of wonder, Candy ends up being like really straightforward with him, which would you choose somebody who you know might fall into that easier? Like someone you would think would be thankful <laughs> that you're like noticing them. <laughs> I mean, it would be helpful, I guess, if you were looking. So it makes me wonder like how attracted to him she was or if she was like looking for the most viable yeah. possibility of an affair. Well, I was going to say he smells like sex. I mean, that's that's kind of stinky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like kind of sweaty and like yeah. gross, especially. And I don't think he smells like sex. He's not really having sex with his wife very much. Like why? Because he's sweating during this volleyball game. That's what sex smells oh like to God. you. I could Sweat. see if he had on like cologne or something, but. <laughs> yeah, she's odd. Mm-hmm. She's very odd. So, again, this friend shocked and she just couldn't understand what about Alan was drawing Candy in. Over time, Alan and Candy would flirt more and more during church events and Candy swore that Alan would wink at her from across the room and the two of them would linger just a little longer than normal after choir practice to chat. It was at one of these choir practices that Candy boldly takes her shot with this married man. She walks up to Alan's car as he began to drive away, and she told him that she needed to talk to him because something had been bothering her. So she hops into his car. They're already crossing the line here for what is appropriate in a marriage, and then Candy blurts out that she is very attracted to Alan. She says that she's sick of thinking about it all the time, so she has to get this off her chest and let him know. She doesn't even give Alan a chance to respond. She just jumps out of his car and she walks off. And this is very flattering to Alan, again, who was starting to feel suffocated and bored in his own marriage. However, he did believe that marriage was a lifelong commitment, so he had to contemplate his next steps because he did not want to get divorced. I mean, the shows make him look like the biggest nerd. I know. They say, like, the show Candy. I heard I was listening to it with these one people. I think that's the one I watched. And that one's, like, better in my well the thing for both of them i think like neither of them are really like honestly good for betty like if you're watching for betty not great oh yeah because it's like not focused on her and well and they make her look in candy make her look like needy and whiny and yeah yeah they're kind of like rude about her Uh like it literally is from candy's perspective which is just frustrating to me, which I liked the show. I thought Jessica Biel did good. I liked the show if it was fake. But then I'm just like, ooh, makes me feel kind of icky that they would make her look bad. Yeah. Oh, and they made him look like I heard him. I heard someone say in the candy one that he the actor that played him, they did him a service. <laughs> but then in this new one, there's a new one called Love and Death. I haven't watched all of it um again because I'm just like meh that's like I watched a documentary on it instead but um I did read that like their ending like they end it the exact way that Candy says it ended oh which is like obviously not the truth yeah 
It's about a week later that Alan and Candy come in contact again. This is after she tells him she's very attracted to him. So following a volleyball game, the two stay afterwards and they're cleaning up the gym together before venturing out to the parking lot where Candy tells Alan to get into her car. It was then that she proposed that they have an affair. Alan was worried about how this would affect his marriage, although he was clearly intrigued because he is entertaining this, but he tells Candy that he's not sure that's a great idea. He tells her that while he and Betty had been living in New Mexico, Betty had an affair and that hurt him very deeply. He didn't want to cause that same hurt onto her. And I'm not sure how true this even is because like we don't have Betty here to defend herself. Did Alan even say this to Candy? Did Candy just claim he said it later on or did Alan claim this to make themselves feel better about what they were going to do? I don't know. So I'm not even going to say that Betty having an affair was fact, but that comes up. Now, remember, Alan and Betty had also been trying for a second baby. This is one of the reasons he felt like their sex life had become routine. Again, get over it, Alan, and find a way to put the effort in to spice it up. Anyway, (laughs) Alan lets Candy know that Betty was pregnant again. So he didn't think that this was a great time to have an affair on her. He told Candy that he didn't feel the same way about Candy that he did about his wife, so he probably could not have this affair. And Candy is basically like, whatever, Alan, I was just putting it out there. I don't want to ruin our marriages. I just wanted to sleep together. And she says she won't mention it again before Alan plops a juicy kiss on her before stepping out of the car. So like Alan to me is just a dweeb. I know I keep ragging on him, but I just like don't really like him even at the end of all of this. So it's like you're going to go through the motions of being like, no, mm -mm, I can't have an affair, but I'll like kiss you before you get out of my car. (laughs) It's like very mixed messages here. Yeah. I'd still be mad if my husband kissed someone. Yeah, that's an affair. Talking about an affair and then kissing each other. (laughs) It's like a mini affair right there starting. So a few weeks later, Alan initiates further conversation again. So he's clearly interested and he calls Candy on her 29th birthday and asks if she wants to meet up the following day to talk more about what they had spoken about earlier. So Candy's heart raced because over the last few weeks, her pride had taken a hit. She felt rejected and stupid after putting herself out there. So obviously she says yes. And at that meeting, the day after Candy's birthday, Alan gives her a birthday card that reads for the last of the red hot lovers. And then it had a bag of red hot candies inside of it, which I'm like, so you don't want to have an affair. I don't believe that. (laughs) I know. Obviously. I don't know why he was even saying he didn't want to. I don't know if he was just trying to like see how serious she was. I don't know. It's very weird. (laughs) So according to a two-part story done by Texas Monthly, the two of them confided in each other about their spouses and the woes they had within their marriages. They also talked about their personal lives and each took interest in listening intently to each other. This was the start of a deadly affair. Regardless of Alan claiming he could never forgive himself if Betty found out, conversations about this affair would continue over the next month. 
Candy and Alan planned out this affair extensively. At one point, Candy had Alan over to her house. She made him a lasagna meal, and then she had two large pieces of butcher paper paper put up with the whys and the why nots listed. They were both very fearful of getting caught, and Alan was a little more fearful than Candy, but ultimately, Alan decides he did want to go through with the affair after weighing the pros and cons. I'm like, this is kind of a lot. <laughs> like, to have an affair. It is. Like, you are having many. How, how much they planned it out. Yes, it's the weirdest thing. Like, you would think an affair kind of happens by, like, you're making dumb decisions. You're not like, all right, <laughs> let's decide if I should do this. Should we? Should we not? <laughs> like, if you're weighing the pros and cons, you think it would just, like, default to, like, probably not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like the weirdest thing. So even after they decide to have this affair, they set some ground rules. In that same Texas Monthly article, they laid out some of the rules that were discussed. If either Alan or Candy wanted the affair to end, it would end with no questions asked. If either of them were too emotionally invested, the affair would end. If they started to take risks that crossed the line, they would end the affair which it's like, I think you're already doing that. All expenses, such as the motel room, the gas to get there, and the food they ate together would be shared equally. They would meet up on the weekdays only while their spouses worked to avoid getting caught. Candy would always fix lunch for them on the days they met because Alan would meet her doing, during his two-hour lunch break at work. And their meeting days would be Tuesday or Thursday every other week because those are the days that Candy would take her son to preschool at the church from 9 a.m. till 2 p.m. So they have like a very set way of having this affair. And then they even set a specific date. They set the date for the affair to begin on December 12th, 1978. Again, just a very planned out affair so awkward to me how much time went into this but whatever so on the morning that the affair would start candy dropped her daughter off at the little red lovejoy schoolhouse and then she dropped her son off at preschool at the church she then went home to prepare a full-on meal for alan she made marinated chicken salad and a cheesecake she paired this with white wine and stuffed it all into a little picnic basket before setting off to cheat on her husband which I'm like, you made a full meal? <laughs> I don't know. It's all so weird. Oh, how romantic. Yeah, like, thank you for this huge meal. And they also say that they ate the meals before, like they would get there and eat first, which I'm like, I feel like you just want to eat after, but I don't know. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> like, if you really think of the logistics, like I'd want to like eat after. Hmm. I'm not trying to be, like, especially full. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. She puts all of this, including a couple lingerie pieces, into her station wagon. And she made her way to Richardson, Texas, where she met Alan at the Continental Inn. Candy arrived first, and she made her way to room 213, where she gave Alan a call at work to let him know where to meet her. 
Candy didn't think the sex with Alan that day was bad, but he was sort of naive. It turned out that Alan hadn't really been around much. He had only been with his wife. So this experience for him was exhilarating. The two showered afterwards to make sure that the smell of each other did not linger, and then they returned to their regular lives. As the affair continued, they wanted to find a cheaper motel than the one they first met at, so they downgraded to the Como Motel, which is still there in Texas today. It was a seedy motel, but Candy sort of loved the vibe because it made the affair, the affair, it made the affair feel even more risky. And this affair continued through the end of 1978 and the beginning of 1979. Candy and Alan met up every other week like they had planned, and the two had become close confidants to each other. Not only were they engaged in a physical affair, but they did become emotionally invested because they shared intimate details with each other about their separate lives, and they leaned on each other for emotional support. So Candy, at one point, she does start questioning this affair after a couple months. She claims that she started getting a little bored with the simple way that Alan engaged in sex, but she was also emotionally invested now, questioning if she loved Alan, so she didn't want to end things. She did, though, end up telling Alan that she was falling in love with him and that she was getting in too deep. And even though Alan was the one who had to be talked into this affair by Candy, now he didn't want things to end. So he told Candy that it won't get too serious. It's up to them to make sure it doesn't go too far, telling her that they have to let it run its course. So the affair continues for a while until June of 1979, when Alan finally decides they need to take a break from this affair. He had started to become anxious about what could happen if he was with Candy when his wife went into labor, because remember, she's literally pregnant. And now, by this time in 1979, she's getting close to giving birth to their second child. So he tells Candy that in these next few months, he needed to focus on Betty, which like, wow, Alan, how very considerate of you. <laughs> like, <laughs> so nice. <laughs> the best husband. Thank you for doing that for Betty. <laughs> now, Candy claims that she understood where Alan was coming from, so she agreed that they should press pause on the affair. Now, something I haven't mentioned as I've talked about this affair is that Candy and Alan continued to maintain their friendships with each other's spouses. Alan and Betty's daughter, Elisa, was good friends with Pat and Candy's daughter. The two of them would hang out. They'd have sleepovers at each other's homes. They were in swim lessons together. And Candy often talked with Betty, pretending to be a close friend. And then Pat, Candy's husband, would even tell Candy how much he liked Alan Gore before he realizes that Alan was sleeping with his wife. So it was like a sick deception that these two pulled on Pat and Betty because they're all still hanging out, which I always think is so weird. Mm -hmm. Like if you can just still hang out as couple friends, you're taking it way too far. Well, you would think the spouses would catch on. I know, but they didn't. So, in fact, Candy was so manipulative that while her and Alan's affair is on this pause, she decides to throw a surprise baby shower for Betty Gore. She invites members of the church to her home for what she called a sit-down Chinese dinner. 
but really it's this surprise baby shower. So Alan and Betty come to the shower together and Betty is happily surprised and grateful that Candy would do this for her, not having any idea that Candy is actually her husband's mistress. So about a month later, in July of 1979, Betty Gore gives birth to her and Alan's second child, who they name Bethany Gore. And while having this baby was a huge blessing in her life, it also brought on tough bouts of postpartum depression, something that she was unfortunately prone to. But the first weeks after having Bethany, Betty and Alan felt closer than ever, and that only lasted so long. The affair, which was on pause, was soon rekindled by the end of July. So literally the same month that Alan has his baby, he's like, all right, our affair can actually continue now. My wife's done being pregnant. Oh my God. I know, which I'm like, not good timing, Alan. I don't like this. He's like, I can't wait the six weeks that you're supposed to. Yeah, literally. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I could punch him. So by the end of July, Alan Gore and Candy Montgomery were sleeping together yet again through meetups at the Como Hotel, while Betty was at home taking care of her brand new baby, as well as her older daughter, Elisa. A sliver of guilt seemed to be creeping into Alan's conscience around this time, though. So after Alan and Betty returned from a trip to Betty's hometown to show off their new little babe, Alan decides to cancel a meetup he had scheduled with Candy for the day after they returned from this trip. He had called Candy from the kitchen while Betty was in the back bedroom. And he noted to Betty that this was a call having to do with church. And then he was able to get the message across without actually saying it. So he basically lets Candy know that he will not be coming to the Como Hotel the following day. And Candy was set to head out on a vacation of her own with her husband, Pat. And this was about a week long vacation. So she was pretty upset that she would not be seeing Alan. Once she returned from Wichita Falls, though, Alan and Candy did reunite yet again at the Como Hotel. Now, it's the same night that Betty Gore decides to try and initiate some intimate time with her husband. Her and Alan hadn't had sex since Bethany was born. I also wonder if Betty had like a gut feeling that just something wasn't right in her marriage because also Alan was not trying to have sex with her either. Yeah. So I don't know if she was like trying to see if he would. And again, little did she know, Alan was was having sex since Bethany's birth, just not with her. So Betty goes to initiate sex with Alan, but he had been with Candy earlier that day. So he wasn't really in the mood. And he tells Betty that he just doesn't feel like it. And this sent her into an absolute tailspin. She was super upset. She's crying because she is embarrassed and she's hurt by the rejection. And this wasn't something she often did. Like she didn't put herself out there to initiate sex. So now she felt kind of foolish. Betty started to believe that Alan no longer loved her like he used to. She told him as much. And sadly, to an extent, she was right. But Alan would not admit this he decided to have a conversation with Candy about how he no longer thought the affair was a good idea. Now he thinks it's starting to affect his marriage, even though he didn't think it was affecting Betty before this, which like, yeah, it wasn't affecting her because she didn't know about it. But like that still affects your marriage. Yeah. But Alan maintains like over and over, like, well, it never affected our marriage. 
like yeah it did it did like whether you think it did or not (laughs) so Candy wasn't too pleased with this conversation. According to Texas Monthly, she told Alan that it was a bit unfair of Betty to say that Alan no longer loved her after he couldn't perform just one time. And when Alan said he wanted to end the affair, Candy told him he was being unfair. So she's like clearly upset that he's trying to end it. Yeah. Now, Candy notes how back when she wanted to end things, Alan pushed her to reconsider. So after this meeting, phone calls between the two of them continue, and ultimately, Candy tells Alan that she loves him. He tells her that they've become too close, and he's afraid now that he doesn't love Betty. He reiterates that he wants the affair to end. It just doesn't feel right anymore. And after Alan's rejection to Betty's advances, she had fallen even further into a depression, so much so that she was feeling physical symptoms of pain. She went to the doctor and was prescribed some pain medication, but the doctor really thought Betty was suffering physical ailments of stress. She also, around this time, found like a lump in her breast, and it ended up being benign, but she was like having a lot of anxiety around this time that like she wasn't going to be around anymore or that she was going to die, which is super weird to me because it's like, could she just feel in her gut something was going to happen to her? Yeah. (laughs) Because this, she didn't have cancer. I mean, in her mind, that's what she's like. Something's wrong with me. Like, what if I have breast cancer? But really could, I don't know. Intuition's weird. I, so I don't know if she really just felt like something was like looming over her. It's very sad. So around this same time, Alan actually quits his job at Rockwell International because soon he would have taken on more jobs that would require extensive travel. And that was a big contention point between him and Betty. He instead goes to work for a small company called ECS Telecommunications. And this was also the perfect excuse to no longer see Candy Montgomery. But when Alan told Candy that his new work duties wouldn't allow him the time to see her, Candy asked for one last meetup at the Como Hotel. So this takes place. Alan and Candy have sex yet again. And Candy made it clear that she was not happy to be ending this affair. And of course, the affair still doesn't end here. Alan and Candy decide to meet up again after this last hotel, like last hotel meetup. This time they don't go to the Como Hotel, so I don't actually know if they ever had sex again, but still, like you're meeting up together. Um, Instead, they take lunch to a park in Dallas and they have a picnic. And it's during this time that Alan tells Candy Betty had asked him to go to Marriage Encounter. Now, we heard about this church program before, back when we covered the murder of June Hoffmeister in northern Idaho. Remember, like her and her husband were working on those speeches for Marriage Encounter. Mm Mm-hmm. And it like had to do with their Catholic church. So it seems like it's something like a few churches do or a few churches support. And it's this program for couples to work on their marriages. So this Methodist church Alan and Betty attended had a program. And Alan tells Candy that he had actually asked Betty to attend long ago and she did not want to. But now she has agreed. Candy can see that this will be the ultimate end for the affair. But Alan tells her, maybe not. They can just wait it out and see what happens. Oh my gosh. 
I know. He like literally does not have the balls to end the affair. Yeah. Do you really want to end the affair? Do you actually not want to hurt Candy's feelings? I don't get it. Like you're saying it has to be over for like 17 meetings <laughs> before it's over. I do not understand. So the Methodist marriage encounter gathering was held one weekend every month at Dunphy's Royal Motor Coach Inn. And this inn like resemble, resembled a medieval castle. They like all the couples would go and stay there for from like Friday to Sunday. So first there was a Friday night dinner where the weekend was laid out for all couples attending. No TV was to be watched. Newspapers would not be read. And the couples were set to solely focus on each other and their relationship. Alan and Betty were assigned to room 321, and the focus of the weekend was on communicating each other's feelings. They would answer many proposed questions by writing into notebooks and then reading each other's answers. Following this, they like would share a kiss and they would discuss how each answer made them feel. When asked to answer the question, why did I come here and what do I hope to gain? Alan wrote in his notebook that he wanted to come because he could see from friends that he could strengthen or rebuild a marriage. He explained that he hadn't felt close to Betty for some time and he didn't like that. He hoped they could learn to talk to each other and that he hoped to better understand Betty through this process. Betty wrote, quote, I came for several reasons. First, for a weekend of relaxation, which will probably help my nerves. Second, and most important, to get off by ourselves together. I'm not a person to be left alone at all. I want my husband with me, and that's what we'll have this weekend. Just us. I hope to gain a little more freedom in expression between us. I don't often hold back my feelings unless I'm mad. Then, not for long, but... Then still not for long, but I feel that sometimes you don't let me know when things are bothering you. We need to work on this. So through these questions asked during marriage encounter, Betty answered the question everyone had always kind of wondered. What did she like about Alan Gore? She wrote in her notebook that she likes his calmness and his ability to look at everything squarely. She referred to him as her tranquilizer. She said that she got a special warm and happy feeling when they were together, stating that it's horrible when they aren't, and she feels like only half of herself when he's gone. She wrote, quote, maybe that means I'm not secure enough. I don't think so. Your presence is just important to me. So it's like that's where in the show, like you said, they made her seem really needy. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think she kind of is, but it seems like she really just cares about him like she wants him around yeah in the show it was like she kept begging him not to go to work and he's like i have to go to work that's how i make a living and she's like oh just stay home i can't stand for you to leave i hate it yeah and it's like i know she really hates him like traveling but it seems like she a had legit anxiety (laughs) and b literally just wanted him to be around her Which I'm like, that's not so bad, Alan. That's probably good if your wife wants you around. Yeah. You know, like maybe be grateful. So by day two, Alan and Betty were feeling closer than ever. On this Saturday, they are asked to write love letters on their feelings of disillusionment. Alan explains that he has feelings of boredom and emptiness in the marriage, obviously. And he doesn't know why, but he just can't seem to figure out what makes Betty happy. 
He writes that he feels the most important thing to Betty is her classroom, not him, and that he feels jealous of the classroom. So it's like even if she is jealous of him going to work, he's jealous of her work too. Yeah, true. And he does write her a lot like, oh, I didn't think our sex life was good because she was always grading papers at the night. Like, okay, that's her job. Like, she has to do that. (laughs) I don't know. It's just typical, like, woes in marriage that you have to work through. Yeah. So in Betty's letter, she wrote that she wears a mask of the do-it-all person. And she writes, quote, I feel that sex is an area that we are a long way apart. I guess part of it is the way I was brought up. Sex is dirty and wrong. For a long time, the fear of becoming pregnant when I didn't want to be was it. I want to be desirable to you and I want to make you happy. Which makes me feel kind of sad for her. Yeah. Because it's like just sad because you know Alan's having this affair for like the past year. So while this weekend was meant to bring out total honesty between a couple, Alan just couldn't bring himself to explain to Betty that he had been cheating on her for the better part of the last year. On Sunday, day three of this program, there's a three-hour matrimonial evaluation where the couples write in their notebooks for an hour and a half and then have dialogue for the other hour and a half. And this is meant to bring out the heavy emotions that were built through the weekend. During this time, Alan wrote in his notebook, quote, Before this weekend, I was beginning to feel like I didn't know if I really wanted to live with you. But just in the short time we've had together this weekend, I have realized that what I was feeling was not that I don't like you, but more like I don't feel excited about you because I'm too used to the way things are. I want to share a lot more of your feelings and I want to be able to share mine with you. Betty wrote, quote, Here I sit crying because I am so happy and so proud to be your wife. I've known that all along, but when you really stop to think about it, we are so lucky to have each other. Let's not let anything come between us. We've been through so much, and all of that we can look back on as good, except the times you were gone for a long time. I remember those times with dread. The aloneness, the coldness of a house that really wasn't a home without you there. The fear for your safety because you were where I was not and I couldn't make sure you were okay. I never really felt fear for my safety at home alone, but the feeling of being alone is the worst possible one to have. It's like you're in a dark tunnel and you've got a long way to go to the light. The light isn't there till you come home again safe and sound. And again, honestly, to me, it's just like, I feel like Betty really loved him. Like, I mean, she maybe was a little needy, but his annoyance with her stemmed from like things he should have loved about her. I don't know. Yeah. Like everything they write, to me, hers feel a lot more like emotional and loving and his feel a lot less that way, which makes sense because he's having an affair. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, by the end of that weekend, all the couples in the marriage encounter program were remarried in a ceremony renewing their vows. As they left this program, they felt reconnected. Their marriage seemed better than ever. However, Alan was still being a lying dirtbag, in my opinion, because where were the Gore children during this weekend away? They were being babysat by none other than the Montgomerys. So Candy is literally babysitting their kids while they're on this marriage encounter group weekend. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like that's the other thing that's such a betrayal to me is that Candy babysat Betty's kids so often. 
Yeah. It's just wrong. Like, you just should not have been involved that way. Yeah. So wrong. So on their way home from this supposed awakening for Alan Gore, they stop at the Montgomery's home, and Alan is the one who runs up to the door to retrieve the children, while Betty sits waiting for him in the car. Candy makes sure to ask Alan how it went, and when he says that it was a really good experience, she asks, what does that mean? And he replies, I don't know. Just a week after this marriage encounter program, Alan is meeting back up with Candy at the park in Dallas. They need to have another conversation. Alan tells Candy about the experience and how it had changed his view on his wife. He tells Candy that he doesn't feel differently about her, but he needs to give his time and attention to his family now. Candy says she's not sure she can go on without seeing Alan again. And ultimately, this conversation ends without a definite conclusion on if the affair would continue or not. They decide to meet up again the next day, and this time Candy tells Alan that it's clear he's leaving it up to her, so she will not bother him anymore. They cried together, but Alan claims he was also sort of relieved that she had finally decided to cut ties. So Candy decides to follow in her ex-lover's footsteps when she signs her and her husband Pat up for their own marriage encounter session. But they didn't quite have the same experience. It didn't change everything about the way Candy felt in her marriage. In those months following the end of this affair, Candy's husband, Pat Montgomery, actually found letters written to Candy from Alan. So he learned about the affair somewhat. I'm sure he was given a watered down version by Candy, who told him that anything that had gone on between her and Alan was over. So I don't even think he like talked to Betty about this or anything. He just decided to stay with Candy. Like I said, she probably gave him like a very watered down version. Yeah. That was not the whole truth. So just after Candy's affair with Alan ended around October of 1979, she actually started up another affair with her best friend's husband. This bestie was Sherry Klecker. Yeah. Like, if you've watched the shows, this is the bestie that she is literally confiding to the entire time about her affair with Alan. And then she goes for her husband. Yes. And then she sleeps with Sherry's husband from like December from November to December of that year, right after her affair with Alan ends. I literally, I just think it's so annoying. And Sherry, she was actually the one who asked Candy if she was crazy when she had thrown the surprise baby shower for Betty Gore because she knew, she was the one who knew that Candy was sleeping with Alan. So like huge betrayal, I'm sure, when Sherry finds out that Candy had also slept with her husband and she doesn't find that till like the following year. It comes out after Betty's murder. So all of this background brings us to June of 1980. It was Friday the 13th. Alan Gore had left for work that morning as usual. And then later that day, he hopped on a flight to Minnesota for a work trip. When he arrives, he tries to call home, but Betty doesn't answer. It's a little strange since it was typical that the couple would talk on the phone as soon as he made it to his destination. Remember, Betty has high anxiety about him traveling. So as the day goes on, Alan tries to call her a few more times, but he receives the answering machine every time. 
And by dinner, he's on edge, but he still goes out to eat with his colleagues. When he returns to his hotel room, he tries one last time to make contact with Betty, but when he can't, he starts to panic. Now, Alan knew that his five-year-old daughter, Elisa, was spending the day with the Montgomerys and was going to have a sleepover. So he makes a phone call earlier that day to his ex-mistress, Candy Montgomery, and asks if she had seen Betty at all that day. Candy says she did actually see Betty that morning when she stopped by the house to grab Elisa's swimsuit so that she could come swimming with them. And he asks if Betty seemed all right, and Candy says she seemed fine, suggesting that maybe Betty had just ran to a friend's house. After Alan talks with his daughter, Candy jumps back on the line and asks if he needs her to run to the house and check on Betty. But Alan says it's okay, he's just going to call the neighbors. Now, before calling Candy, he had already spoken with one of his neighbors, Richard Parker. And this man was also the real estate agent that had sold the Gores their home there in Wiley. Alan had asked Richard to knock on their door and see if Betty was home. And it had been getting later into the evening, so Richard was a little annoyed, but he did. He ran across the street and he knocked on the door, but there was no answer. So Richard reports back to Alan that Betty must be out and about. Ultimately, Alan makes a second call to Richard Parker, asking if he can check and see if Betty's car is in the garage. Richard reports back that there is only one car in the garage and the garage is open and the lights in the house are on. Now, Alan is taken back. He feels in his gut something is wrong. There should have been two cars in the garage. So he calls the Plano Hospital and the police in Wiley to see if they have seen Betty or if there's been an accident, but they hadn't heard of Betty Gore. Now, Alan calls Candy again, checking once more if she can remember anything strange about earlier that day when she saw Betty. But Candy says there was nothing weird she noticed. Finally, around 11 p.m. on June 13, 1980, Alan calls Richard for a third and final time. He tells Richard he's past the point of being worried now and he needs Richard to go check the doors and see if he can get inside. If Betty left in a hurry, maybe she left a note. This time, as Richard came closer to the front of the Gore's home, he noticed that there were actually two cars in the garage. One had just been pulled so far forward that he didn't see it the first time he checked. And from the garage, he tried to open the door that would lead him inside the home through the utility room, but it was locked. Richard actually returned to the phone and he told Alan that something felt eerie at the house. He said something is wrong, but he doesn't know what. Both cars are in the garage and the lights are on, but no one is answering the doors. Now, Alan insists that Richard get inside his home somehow, no matter what it took. After hanging up, Alan also calls Jerry McMahon, and this is another neighbor of the Gores. Jerry suggests that Betty is just out with friends, but Alan says there's no way. She would not be out this late. So, Jerry's wife is scared by the phone call and does not want him to go over there alone, so she has her husband call another neighbor, Lester Gaylor, and together they make their way to Alan and Betty's home. In the front yard, Jerry and Lester run into Richard, and the three of them first try the utility room door that goes into the home from the garage. And this is the door that Richard had tried earlier, but this time he brought his realtor keys and he thought one of them might work but they didn't. 
So the men also try the back sliding door, but it is also locked. They ultimately end up at the front door, and it turns out that the front door isn't even locked. I think they just assumed it would be, so they hadn't tried it, and none of them had considered that it would be open. All three men seemed hesitant to walk inside, but they finally take the steps in, calling out Betty's name. Jerry looks into the bathroom when he's inside, and he sees a dark substance. He tells the other men that he believes something is very wrong. It's Lester who discovers baby Bethany in her crib. When he went into her room, he found her crying and alone. It was evident that she had been alone and upset in that crib for the entire day. Her diaper was extremely full and she was covered in her own soil. And this sight sent chills down the men's spines. What was going on and where was Betty? So Richard ran Bethany back to his wife and asked her to call the police before returning to the Gore's home. Jerry and Lester continued searching the home, but found nothing as they explored the master bedroom. Lester ultimately starts searching the kitchen area and makes his way to the utility room door. He cracks it open and peers in just enough to see a room smothered in blood and Betty laying lifeless on the floor. His first thought is that Betty took her own life, so he calls to the other men that he found her. They should not look, but Jerry quickly comes and peers into the room. He says that Betty has blown her head off. As they race to the phone to call the police, the phone inside the Gore home actually rings, and Lester picks it up. It's Alan. Jerry takes over the phone, telling Alan that it's not good, but that the baby is okay. He goes on to tell Alan that he's sorry. It looks like Betty has been shot, but Alan is confused. He asks how because they don't own a gun. Now, not knowing what to do in this moment, Alan calls freaking Candy Montgomery. Oh my gosh. So he finds out his wife has died and his first call is to Candy. I cannot handle him. Yes. Isn't that annoying? Like that pisses me off. Like what are you doing? So... And even Pat Montgomery, again, who knows that this affair occurred, but is literally watching the Gore children. I don't know if he, like, Candy told him it was, like, more of a friendship type thing and, like, never sexual, you know? I don't know. But Pat Montgomery is, like, WTF because this call from Alan is coming in at 11.30 p.m. And he's actually in the middle of having sex with Candy. But Candy still answers the phone. And this is when Alan tells her that Betty is dead. Alan tells Candy that he and Betty had been in an argument that morning because she was late to start her period and she didn't think she could handle another pregnancy. But he says he never thought Betty would do this to herself. So Alan thinks Betty killed herself, I guess, even though they don't own a gun. Like if you don't own a gun... And you're thinking she's shot because that's like what the people who saw it thought. You're still thinking she shot herself. Like if I didn't own a gun, I'd be like, who shot, who shot her? You know, <laughs> who shot her because we don't have a gun. <laughs> yeah. Like you think she went and bought a gun that day? I don't think so. Just very odd. So Alan asks the Montgomerys to keep Elisa for a bit and to not tell her what has happened so that he can have the conversation with her himself. 
It was tragic that Betty had been found dead for many reasons. One of them being that following that marriage encounter program, Alan and Betty had been planning a European trip together and they were set to depart just about a week after her death. So according to episode 15 in season 30 of Snapped, which featured many of those involved in this case, when investigators arrived, they found little bloodstains all over the home. The utility room, where Betty lay dead, was pulled with blood an inch deep. Splatters and smears covered the walls and the ceiling. The scene was explained as a bloodbath, and it turns out Betty was not shot. Upon closer examination of the body, cuts could be seen all over her arms, legs, head, and face. There was also an axe laying on the floor next to her. Betty was murdered. It was ultimately discovered that she was hit with this axe 41 times total. 28 of those blows were focused to her head and her face. The left side of her face was so demolished that it was unrecognizable. And this is how the men who found her mistake that she shot herself and in their words had blown her head off because her head was, was literally, so yeah, so like mutilated. Mashed. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Ivor Stone, who is the former chief of physical evidence in Dallas, explains that this murder was classic overkill. Betty did not need to be struck 41 times in order to be killed. This felt personal. It was clear that the perpetrator had tried to clean up the floor, but was unsuccessful. It was Stephen Diffabaugh, a former Collin County investigator, who found a bloody fingerprint on the freezer. Investigators actually were unsuccessful in lifting this fingerprint as it was 1980, and I guess this surface was a tough one to lift fingerprints off of, but they had been able to get a very clear photograph of the fingerprint. So investigators had also found a small bloody shoe print. They could tell it was a flip-flop that was being worn because of the three holes in the, in the print where those flip-flop marks would be. So inside the bathroom down the hallway, more blood was found on the tile inside the shower on the wall. And in the drain, there was more blood and hair. It was clear that the person who committed this brutal murder had taken a shower afterwards to clean themselves up. Oh and then they gosh. found something. Yeah. So then they found something that made all their blood run a little cold. A Dallas morning newspaper had been left open on the counter. It was open to the movie section where a large ad for the movie The Shining was. So this horror movie involves an axe murder. And there was blood on this newspaper, indicating that the killer had opened this newspaper to this ad. Was it probably just some distraction technique or some way to point at reasoning for this crime that wasn't the real reasoning? Probably. Like, I'd assume that was done on purpose. Yeah. But it just made everyone wonder, like, was this some sort of copycat killer or stranger intrusion hell-bent on reenacting a scene from this movie? And again, this murder is done on Friday the 13th. So there's just like a lot of weird things that connect to horror movies. And for the public, once the news spread of Betty's murder, they panic. Everyone was scared that some psychopathic serial killer was on the loose. But John Bloom, co-author of a book on this case titled Evidence of Love, explains that police saw the focus on Betty's face as something only a person who personally knew her would do. 
it's unlikely that a stranger will try to mutilate someone's face. But if the perp knows the victim, they might try to in a way to erase who that person is, to distance themselves from it. The violence of this murder strikes police as intimate. There was rage behind it. After walking through the Gore's home, investigators go to talk to neighbor Richard Parker. While they're talking to him, his home phone rings, and it's Alan Gore. He's calling back to ask what's going on. A police officer takes the phone to tell Alan that he is sorry, but Betty has been found dead. Alan says he will come home immediately. He is cooperative, but his tone is explained as even kill. Investigator Steven says he believed Alan should have been a basket case. This is the mother of his two children, who was brutally murdered, but Alan didn't seem emotional. And again, we know that everyone reacts different, but it struck investigators as weird, even though everyone does handle grief in their own way. To police, Alan seemed very cold. He was also the first to notice that something is wrong, so he is now the number one suspect. During the walkthrough of the home, police had also gone into the kitchen and discovered there was burnt coffee. So investigators think Alan could have killed Betty in the early morning hours before leaving for work. But remember, those flip-flop prints, they were too small for a man. This leads them to believe that they may be looking for someone who was small in stature. The following day, investigators come to the Gore home and find Alan, his two daughters, and Betty's family that had came in from Kansas. Alan seemed to act like it was just another day, no big deal. This sat odd with everyone, but investigators decide to give him space to plan the funeral. Ronald Pomeroy tells investigators that someone had called the Gore home while they were staying there. Ronald is Betty's brother. So when that phone call came in, their other brother, Richard Pomeroy, answered, and this person on the phone says, I killed her. Other calls said that the daughters are next. So this is scary, and investigators put a trace on the line hoping for another call. Ronald Pomeroy said he would answer these calls and try to keep the callers on the phone as long as possible so investigators could track the call. And they do track one call to a mental hospital. Police went and they find a middle-aged man who was wanting to claim that he killed Betty. But nothing was adding up. And it was determined this was a hoax. So very disgusting, like that every time murders happen, people decide to prank call, hoax call. Like, it's very odd and like very sick. Yeah. But regardless of this dead end, another lead does come in. A five-year-old girl comes forward saying that she was playing in the street that morning around 9 a.m. And she even knocked on the front door of the Gorse home to see if Elisa was there, but no one answered. Just a bit later, the same five-year-old girl saw Candy Montgomery leaving Betty's home that morning around 11 a.m. This five-year-old knew Candy and was able to identify her because she was also friends with Candy's daughter. So because of this, detectives asked Candy to come in for an interview on June 15th. It seems she is the last person to see Betty alive. Candy explains that around 10.30 or 11 a.m., she did go to pick up a swimsuit for Betty's daughter who was spending the night, and they chatted for a bit before she went back to lunch at the church by noon. 
Candy had been teaching vacation Bible school that summer, and both Betty and Candy's daughters were there when Candy went to pick up the swimsuit. During this investigation, police take Candy's fingerprints. They explain that it's just protocol for everyone that they interview. Candy says she understands, but she makes sure to explain that they might find her fingerprints inside the Gore's home. She specifically mentions that she went into the utility room to get the swimsuit, and she also washed her hands in the Gore's bathroom. How very convenient. For now, Candy is able to leave, and Alan is still under police radar. So on June 16th, just hours after Betty is laid to rest, investigators sit down with Alan Gore. He says his marriage to Betty was solid, although he admits they did get in an argument that morning before he left to Minnesota. They can't hold him or anything, so Alan is free to leave while police follow up on his alibi. But the next morning, Alan calls the chief of police. According to Jim Atkinson, co-author of Evidence of Love, Alan is having a crisis of conscience. Alan tells police that he started an affair about a year and a half ago. It had ended about six months earlier, but this affair was with Candace Lynn Montgomery. Richard Pomeroy, Betty's brother, said that Candy seemed like a genuinely nice and concerned person. She had brought Mills to the home and talked with Betty's family following the murder. She was even present when Alan told his five-year-old daughter, Elisa, that her mom was in heaven. Candy was a pillar of the community and the least likely suspect until the affair came to light. Alan tells police that he had never told Betty about this affair and he believed that Candy moved on as well. But police question, did Alan plan this murder with Candy even though he was in Minnesota? So they have him take a polygraph and Alan passed with flying colors. So investigators move their focus onto Candy. Nancy Crandell was a friend of both Betty and Candy as she attended the same church. She was present during vacation Bible school that day on June 13th, and she recalls that Candy told her during school that she needed to run and grab a swimsuit for, from Betty for Elisa Gore. She left at 9.45 a.m., and she didn't come back until after 11 a.m. Nancy also noticed that Candy had changed her clothes. Nancy remembers thinking that must be hot what she's wearing now because the sleeves came down a little further and the neck was a little higher. Although the clothes she changed into resembled in color the clothes she had worn earlier that day. The biggest difference was that Candy was no longer wearing the flip-flops she usually wore all summer. She was now wearing tennis shoes. It turns out that the flip-flops Candy once loved, she actually cut them up into pieces and discarded of them following Betty's murder. Very strange behavior. So Candy is asked to come back to the Collin County Sheriff's Office on the morning of June 17th. The police ask her about a polygraph, but her attorney shuts it down. One attorney that's interviewed on Snapped is Robert Udashin. And just four days after Betty Gore's murder, investigators pull Candy's fingerprints that they had taken during that first conversation with her. An expert used the photograph of the bloody fingerprint to match it to one of Candy Montgomery's fingerprints. Around this same time, police learn that Candy wears a size 5 shoe. 
matching the size of the bloody flip-flop print found at the murder scene. Soon, Candy is arrested. Investigator Steve, who interviewed on that Snap documentary, was the one to read her her rights. And when she is booked into the jail, female officers strip search her, and they notice all these bruises and a little cut on her toe. The town is in an uproar when they learn of Candy's arrest. Everyone is in shock. It seems truly unbelievable that Candace Montgomery could have murdered Betty Gore. The trial begins in October of 1980, and it's during the opening statement that the defense finally reveals how they will be defending Candy. She pleads not guilty due to self-defense. Her attorney said that they have quite a story to tell. Candy did kill Betty Gore, but she did so in self-defense. Ultimately, the defense calls Candy Montgomery to the stand. Candy testifies that in her mind, the affair was over. She didn't even think Betty knew of it. But when she arrived to pick up the swimsuit for Elisa, Candy claimed that Betty confronted her. She went to the garage and she got an axe to confront Candy about the affair with Alan. Candy claims that Betty brought the axe forward and it bounced on the linoleum, ultimately grazing Candy's foot. And this is how she explains a small cut on her toe. Candy says she was terrified and she tried to leave the house, but Betty blocked her in, so she couldn't leave. Ultimately, Candy gains control of the axe through this confrontation, and she claims to defend herself with it, she had to go after Betty. She testifies that she was telling Betty she didn't want Alan, but that Betty was saying she couldn't have him and that she had to kill Candy. Candy testifies, and I hit her, and I hit her, and I hit her. Prosecutors recount, and they say that this was overkill. Where is the self-defense? Candy hit Betty 41 times, most of which were completely unnecessary if she was simply trying to defend herself. But Candy's defense team has an answer for this. They next call a psychiatrist to the stand. This is Dr. Fred Faison. As a part of his evaluation process, he hypnotized Candy. And it was this evidence that convinced her attorney, Robert, that she was telling the truth. According to Dr. Faison, events during this confrontation triggered her from traumatic events in her childhood, where Candy was once cut as a child and taken to the hospital for stitches. While Candy had been crying, her mom had shushed her, saying, shh. So during this fight with Betty, Candy claims that Betty had shushed her. And when she did this, it triggered her. Candy says she went into a disassociative state. And during this hypnotizing session, Dr. Faison says that Candy said, quote, I hate her. She messed up my whole life. Look at this. I hate her. I hate her. I won't let her hit me again. I don't want him. He can't do this to me. So this is Candy's defense. She didn't do anything wrong. She only did what she had to do. And Dr. Faison backed her up. She was <laughs> psycho. She really is. <laughs> yes. The trial lasted eight days and the jury went back to deliberate at the end of this trial. 
After only four and a half hours, the jury returns with a verdict. Candace Lynn Montgomery is found not guilty. The entire courtroom roared upon hearing the injustice. Everyone was outraged. How was this the outcome? Oh, that is insane. That is totally crazy. Yeah, because she gets off in self-defense. Yeah, I cannot believe she got off on that. That That is insane. Yeah, I literally hate it. And then Alan seems to end up kind of weird. Like, I don't know. I sometimes yeah. wonder if he did know more. I know if he knew about it, but then... Because it's like, if she got away with it, she obviously wouldn't have said anything. Like, what if she was planning to get away with it? She did, and then she's like, great, we both got off. Yeah. I don't know. Now, a lot of people do take Candy's story as somewhat truthful. All the shows are presented to be about Candy. All the storylines follow Candy's story. I mean, the show on Hulu is literally called Candy. The show Love and Death literally portrays the murder scene as Candy tells it. And even former investigator Steve says that he did believe there was some sort of argument or confrontation and that this was a crime of opportunity, not premeditation. However, I just do not agree. I personally believe this was premeditated, planned out by a jealous Candy Montgomery. I hate that her story of self-defense even gets woven in with the telling of this crime even though legally that is how it went down. I just think that Candy went there with the intent to kill Betty. She was not a good person. She never was. And she was never really friends with Betty. They're, they're all weird. Yeah. Okay. All weird. They portrayed Candy as normal in the shows and yeah. kind of like this cool, yeah, calm and collected person. Yeah. Obviously, she was a psycho. And I don't believe like her side at all. Like one of the investigators was like, yeah, I think it's a I do think it was a crime of opportunity and not premeditated. But I'm just not with it. No, I think she went there to no. kill her. I think yeah, she, she totally planned it. I think she was jealous and she he wouldn't leave her. Yep. Yeah, I do, too. But Candy was a free woman after her eight day trial came to a conclusion. And for a bit, her husband, Pat Montgomery, stood by her side, regardless of the affairs and accused murder. But ultimately, they did get divorced, and Candy now goes by her maiden name, Candace Wheeler. She moved to Georgia, and get this, she worked as a mental health counselor. I cannot imagine. Literally, please stop going to her if she is your counselor. I don't even <laughs> actually know if she's practicing anymore as she is in her like 70s now. But shocking that you can murder someone and go on to work as a mental health counselor. I cannot handle it. This is like, it is so unjust. I just hate yeah, it. Yeah, Candy, she crazy. Yeah. And the fact that she got away with it. Anyway, Pat also changed his name, and his whereabouts are unknown. And honestly, I'm not even sure how I feel about Alan. On one hand, if he really knew nothing about his wife's murder, and this was like a devastation to him, I would imagine he would feel very guilty for the events that he took part in that ultimately led to Betty's murder. But Alan's behavior afterwards honestly has me side-eyeing him as well. Alan Gore remarried only three months after Betty Gore's murder, and he married a woman named Elaine Clift, who was also someone that they knew through the church. 
Soon after Candy's murder trial, the couple moves to another area of Texas. Alan also didn't necessarily seem to be against Candy during the trial. Ultimately, this second marriage does end in divorce, but his daughters, Elisa and Bethany, claim that Elaine and Alan were abusive to them. It's alleged that Elaine even forced one of the girls to read the book on her mother's murder, and she was very cruel and vulgar to them about what happened to their mom. It was so bad that Alan did lose custody of Elisa and Bethany, who moved in with Betty's parents, Bertha and Bob Pomeroy, in 1988, just eight years after their mother's murder. They were estranged to Alan for a long time, but it seems at a minimum they are now friends with their dad on social media. Alan is now retired and living in Florida with a longtime girlfriend. Elisa stated during an interview in 2000 that she thinks her mom would be proud of them, and it angers her to think of what could have been. Elisa, who goes by Lisa, married her husband, John Harder, in 1996, and she has two sons. They all live in Kansas. Bethany Gore married her husband, Chad Mickey, in 2001 and has four children, one of which she named after her mother, Betty. Bethany said in that interview back in 2000 that she wonders if Candy thinks about it every day like they do. Ronald Pomeroy only wants his sister Betty remembered as the warm and bubbly person that she was. Thanks for listening. I'm Kayla Waters. I research, write, host, and edit this podcast. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser is given by Charlie Waters, and all our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Make sure to find us on all social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter, and leave us a five-star review if you haven't done so. We appreciate you, and thanks for tuning in. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and I'm going to be giving you a palate cleanser. I thought this was an interesting interesting palate cleanser because I live in Idaho, and it's the potato state. Did you know potatoes were the first vegetable to be grown in space? In 1995, the University of Wisconsin-Madison and NASA partnered together. So there you have it. Potatoes are cooler than you thought. Bye. Have a great day. Today, I want to highlight the organization Futures Without Violence. You can find them at futureswithoutviolence.org. They help support advocates, survivors, and their families. If you go to their website, you can see a way to donate to them. But first, you can learn about their organization and what they're all about. They are a health and social justice nonprofit with a simple mission, to heal those among us who are traumatized by violence today and to create healthy families and communities free of violence tomorrow. They focus on things from domestic violence to child abuse to bullying and sexual assault. So I highly recommend you check out their website. You see how you can get involved, take action, and donate if you can.